0: Hey guys. Good morning. I'm, a, I'm really happy to be um, back with you. This is, I think, my third time getting to spend time with you. And the first time I was here, as an American speaking to a foreign audience, I just felt the need to apologize for everything. <laughs> but honestly, lately, I kind of feel more like, hey, we're in it together, guys. <laughs> we feel you right now, okay? Um, now I'm really, really honored to be here, so thanks for, um, for having me. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a state of of lostness, I was just really confused about some aspects of where I was going in life. And I was trying to figure it out, but the more I tried to figure it out, the more lost I felt. And so I sought out some help, and specifically I sought out a, a spiritual director. If you haven't heard that phrase, uh, depending on which branch of Christian experience you come from, uh, you may not have encountered this idea, but a spiritual direction is a practice that's been around for quite a long time in certain streams of Christian faith. And so you go to a spiritual director, and their job is to help you figure out where God's leading you in your life. So I sought one out. Now, um, I live in South Bend, Indiana, where the University of Notre Dame is, known for the fighting Irish. And uh, I went there and found a, an old Jesuit priest who's 80 years old and is a theologian, this sort of renowned old man who had a real reputation for being quite wise and gifted at spiritual direction with people that met with him. And so I go to this guy, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, okay, he's 80 years old, he's a Jesuit priest, he's a renowned theologian, I'm thinking I'm going to walk into his office. I'm going to put the situation in front of him. And he's just going to spew buckets of wisdom on me, right? Like he's just going to open his mouth and clarify everything. So I walk in with this big expectation. I'm picturing like Yoda from the Star Wars, right? Like, I don't know, meets the Pope. Like something like that, right? And so so I go there with all these hopes. And I I sit down and I meet him. And and, and my first um, sort of encounter, I, i immediately struck by how joyful he seems. He's got this... A sweet sort of glimmer in his eyes for an old man. He seems quite young. And he has this perpetual smirk on his face, which never went away. All the time that I met with him, it was like he was in on some kind of cosmic joke that I hadn't heard yet, you know? But I I, I immediately felt safe with him and was really looking forward to meeting with him. But then we sat down, and for that entire first meeting, he only did one thing. He did not open the scriptures and pummel me with the word of God. He didn't show me where in some obscure text was the answer that I'd been looking for. He didn't share stories from his own life, even though with 80 years of life and faith, surely he could have shared lots of examples from his own life that sort of mapped onto my life in that moment that probably would have been really helpful, right? But he didn't do any of those things, not just for the first meeting. But I met with this guy over and over and over and over and over again, and again and again and again and again. He only did one thing, and the only thing he did every time I met with him was ask me questions. Just one question after another, and it didn't feel like I was being interrogated as much as it felt like I was being peeled back. Sort of opened up, right? Well, he's a Jesuit, and it turns out that the practice of spiritual direction in the Jesuit tradition, that that's pretty core to the practice. But it's not just the Jesuits who do that. Have you ever heard of the Quakers? Yeah, and the States, they're known for their oatmeal. I don't know if that's the case here. It's a brand. Uh, but the Quakers are a Christian tradition, and they have something called a clearness committee. And at a clearness committee, if you're seeking or discerning something, you'll sit with your Quaker sisters and brothers, and there'll be a lot of sacred silence, and then out of that sacred silence will emerge sacred questions. And that community will come around you to help you discern, and the one thing they will do is ask you questions. Now, it's not just the Jesuits, and it's not just the Quakers, that have discovered there's a power in sacred questions, it's actually all over the scriptures, and if you read um, through the Bible and specifically through the stories of Jesus, you find that often the moments of revelation or encounter, the moments where something turns in a character's life, the moments where God breaks in, that they're often occurring not through some incredible show of divine force, often not through some piercing directive given by the voice of God or Jesus. Like, often the turning points happen in the scriptures. When, when God or God speaking through the prophets or God speaking through Jesus, that somehow it's just a sacred question is offered that cracks things open and turns them in a different direction. And so today I just thought if it's okay with you, I just would dig into one of those sacred questions that comes from the scripture. And the goal would be not just that we hear Jesus asking it to a character in scripture, but that we would let the same question crack us open a little bit, like let it interrogate us and see what it does for us today. So that's where I wanna go and we're gonna do some work uh, from the Gospel of Mark. Are you guys up for doing a little work with me? You down for it? Yeah? Okay, I don't know what, I don't, if the answer is no, I don't know what we do now, so <laughs> I, guess, I guess we'll just go into it, okay? Uh, let me show you from the book of Mark. Uh, this is from Mark chapter 10. Then they came to Jericho. This is uh, the people who are with Jesus. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. All right, first of all, just a little bit of context around this moment. This is pretty late in Mark's gospel. So the movement that Jesus is leading has been building for a while now. The crowds are growing growing. Also, the resistance is growing, which means there are enemies that are sort of having it out for Jesus. But, but the point is like Jesus' importance is being recognized by more and more people and the crowd is growing around him. And so I point that out to suggest that, first of all, let's go easy on the disciples because it's easy to kind of make fun of them for getting this wrong, right? The fact that they tell the beggar to shut up when Jesus calls him forward. But you've got this big movement that's happening and it's socially important, it's politically important, it's religiously important, and Jesus is at the very center of it and there's a beggar by the side of the road. And by the way, everybody knows what a beggar wants, which is money, right? And so Jesus is moving along with this crowd and he's the center of this movement. And I think it's actually fair to to understand why the disciples would think their job is to get this guy to shut up, right? Like surely at most he might need a handout from one of the guys in Jesus' entourage, but he doesn't need to distract the head of the movement while he's on his way to do the really important things that he's here to do. Like can you feel a little empathy for these guys who get it wrong and who tell this beggar just to be quiet for a minute? Like I I don't think um, it's that hard for us to understand. However, they obviously do get it wrong because they tell this guy to shut up and then Jesus tells his disciples to shut up. And he calls the guy forward right into the center of this moment, right? Now, I also want to observe before we even get any further into this, um, that this is not the only time in scriptures where the people closest to Jesus get Jesus wrong. This is not the only time in the scriptures where the people who have had the most time with Jesus, who have the most relationship with Jesus, who have been hanging out with Jesus the longest, get Jesus wrong. This is not the only time that Team Jesus, Jesus Incorporated, the guys with the Jesus jackets, the Jesus jerseys who have like all the affiliations around Jesus, get Jesus wrong. And specifically the way they get Jesus wrong here is the way they often get Jesus wrong, which is they assume that Jesus wants nothing to do with someone that in fact he's quite taken with. You see that? This is not the only time in the scriptures that the people right around Jesus who maybe have the most claim to represent his agenda are wrong about his agenda. And the way that they're wrong about it is they assume that he wants nothing to do with someone that he's in fact quite taken with. Now, I call that up for two reasons before we go further. One, because some of us in the room are like on team Jesus. Like some of us like, carry the brand you know Um, it's part of our identity it goes with us out into the world and perhaps other people look at us and, and assume that we know something of the agenda of jesus and so i say that for all of us who feel like we're on team jesus just to be humble enough to recognize there might be moments in our lives when we think we know his agenda and we could be flat out wrong about it and it could be that the way that we are wrong about jesus's agenda is that we think there are people or labels that for some reason jesus wants nothing to do with but in fact he might be quite taken with them and we might be the ones standing in the way of that. So I call that out for those of us who like, feel like we're on Team Jesus. I also call it out for anybody who feels like you're not, but who has had Team Jesus dismiss you, disrespect you, disparage you, kick you to the curb. And I just want to point out that they might have been the ones who had it wrong on Jesus' agenda. And he might be a representative of a God who's in fact quite taken with you. And if you've been kicked to the curb, or told to shut up by Team Jesus, I'm just really sorry about that. And I just want to call it the possibility that those voices were were wrong. Now, um, Jesus calls the guy forward, and then uh, he has a peculiar interaction with him. And this is really where I want to hang out, um, is in the exchange between Jesus and the beggar. So let me show you uh, this next verse here. Jesus brings the beggar forward, and he simply asks, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, at first, as I'm reading along and trying to put myself in this story, I'm actually kind of embarrassed for Jesus because he's a beggar. Everybody knows what a beggar wants. What's the beggar want? Money. Yeah, everybody knows what a beggar wants. It's so easy to make this person one-dimensional, right? Like you walk by and you immediately think that you know who he is, what he wants, and what his whole story is. And so at first, I'm kind of embarrassed for Jesus Uh, for bringing this guy forward and missing the fact that everybody knows what a beggar wants. Except Jesus seems to think there's more to this person than the label that he carries in the story here. And so he brings the beggar forward and he asks him, what do you want? Which takes me all the way to this sacred question in a more simple form. What do you want? And that's actually the question that I want us to hear today. Just that, what do you want? This is a question about desire, and if we sit with it for a minute, I think a lot of us can sense the fact that desire gets scary. It's complicated. If you've lived just a little bit, you know that to be human is to be a wanting animal, that there are these craving, wanting energies inside us. And talking about desire perhaps threatens to crack open that whole sort of package of craving, wanting energies inside us. And frankly, I think some of us are actually pretty uncomfortable with that. Like, to, to talk about what you, what you actually want might take us into a conversation that not all of us want to have, right? Now, to be fair, like, I think one of the reasons um, that some of us are uncomfortable in a conversation about desire is that there's such a thing as unworthy desire, of desire that's too small for us, of desire that destroys us. There's such a thing as wanting the things that are bad for us or bad for our neighbor. There's such a thing as selfish desire. There's such a thing as what the scriptures call sinful desire. It's possible that a lot of those wanting energies inside us are things that we need to shut down or cut off or say no to. Like, I think that's actually true. And by the way, the passage that we're looking at actually acknowledges that. So we've been in Mark 10, verse 46 and following, but just 10 verses earlier, Jesus asked the same question about desire to other people but earlier, we see an example of unworthy, small, selfish, ego-driven desires. So the scriptures are really clear about this. Let me go just 10 verses earlier and show you what happens. Here, Jesus is talking to his friends, James and John. These are two of the people who are on team Jesus. And they come to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And so notice, Jesus asked them the exact same question that he asked the beggar, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. So just a few verses earlier, Jesus has a conversation with the people who are closest to him about their desire. And the desire they name is this ego-driven need to be on top of the org chart as Jesus' movement gains the kind of political power that they were hoping would eventually lead to it sort of taking over the day. And they wanna be at the top of all of that. And then he says to them, like, you don't know what you're asking. Almost like, do you hear the words coming out of your mouth? Like, the scriptures are really clear. There's such a thing as unworthy desire, as petty desire, of sinful desire, like ego-driven desire, the kind of desire that doesn't get any of us anywhere. But Jesus doesn't stop asking these questions about what you want. In fact, I wonder if for James and John, like, part of the power of Jesus asking them what they want is that by saying it out loud, they can finally realize how petty it is. Like, maybe there's a power even in naming the petty desires, because once you put them on your lips or you externalize them for a moment, you can look at them for what they are and you can say, oh, that's that's too small. It's petty. It's ego. It's the kind of desire that when in the driver's seat of our lives or our communities, it's the kind of desire that breaks things, that causes us to war against one another. And so, yeah, there's such a thing as unworthy desire, of course. There's such a thing as petty desire, as sinful desire, the kind of desire that leads us to destroy ourselves and other people, the kind of desire that causes us to try to climb on top of each other to get to the top. But Jesus doesn't stop asking about desire. It's rather that he goes further into it. So talks to James and John and says, what do you want? And they name this petty thing, and Jesus doesn't hang his head sort of, woefully thinking about the terrible nature of human desire, the beggar comes along and he says again, I want you to talk to me about what you want. Jesus seems to think that the answer to unworthy desire isn't to cut ourselves off from that wanting thing inside our chests, but to listen even more deeply to it, to go further into it, right? There's a a writer, um, sort of hometown team here named C.S. Lewis, Uh, who says it like this in The Weight of Glory, a book that he wrote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Meaning you need better, deeper, truer desire not to be cut off from your desire. And so Jesus keeps asking, like, what do you want? So let me just observe. Before we even get further into the interaction, some of us need to listen deeply, like more importantly, more rootedly to the desires inside us. Like you need to get beyond the thing that your ego wants, the thing that your soul wants. And I suspect that if some of us actually listen to the thing that our souls want, for example, some of us would find out that what you actually want, like what you deeply want, is for your marriage to flourish and you actually want that more than the one night stand that would blow up the promise that you made that day. Others of us need to listen to our souls long enough and deeply enough to understand that what we want most is for our neighbors to experience safety and belonging when they don't and that we actually want that more than we want to maintain a status quo that has some of us enjoying the world in ways that others can't. Some of us need to listen to deeper desire inside us because if we do, we might find out that we actually want to live generous lives more than we want to let our desires be colonized by the kind of acquisitional sort of mantras of the marketing world that keep trying to come in and tell us that what we really want is to keep up with the Joneses next door and the things that they've gotten for themselves rather than giving our lives, our resources, everything that we have away. I think that's true deep down in there that we want the best. But to hear it, we've got to get beyond these ego-driven things that are craving inside us. And so Jesus keeps asking us, what do you want? Like, what's all the way deep down in there? What do you want? Now, in my experience, um, things start to happen when you get clear on what you really want. And often naming our deepest desires can open up or unleash some powerful and important things. Uh, Earlier this summer, uh, one of my best friends in the world took his own life. We'd lived together uh, for years after college. We'd stayed really close. And just a year and a half ago, I was there performing his marriage ceremony to him and his wife. And then in January, I remember the text that I got from him with the ultrasound that showed the baby that was growing in her womb. And then I very, very distinctly remember the phone call that I got just a few months later telling me that he had uh, killed himself. And so uh, I hopped on a plane to Nashville um, to to do his funeral, to speak at his funeral. And uh, this was a moment of lostness like I've uh, not felt in a very long time. Um, usually like when it comes to talking, it's the one thing I know how to do. <laughs> I don't know how to do much. Um, but if there's something to be spoken at, I usually kind of confine my way. And it was the night before Alex's funeral and I was uh, in the upper floor of my friend's house that I was staying at in Nashville and I had a pad of paper in front of me, knowing that I needed some words that I could speak to a thousand people who were gonna show up from coast to coast and a couple other continents to say goodbye to Alex who we lost in a way that we never imagined. And I remember feeling the impossibility of that moment and just staring at this blank pad of paper and I began to pray my way through this because I didn't know how else to find my way through it. And um, I remember praying about how lost I felt and how sad I was and how angry I was. And then the question that I felt rising up, that it felt like it came from outside of me, but it also felt like it bubbled up inside me. The question that I felt I heard was simply like, what do you want right now, Jay? you can't solve what happened, you can't fix it, you can't really explain it, but what do you want right now? And I don't usually pray out loud, but I actually found myself praying out loud in this really dark room. And this wasn't like profound, what came out of my mouth. It wasn't um, elevated. But I'll I'll not forget that what came out of my mouth is simply um, saying, I just want to do a good job. There's a bunch of people here who are experiencing this aching hole where Alex was and the devastation of a kind of death that should never happen. And I don't, I don't want to be a preacher right now. I don't want to be um, performative right now. I just want to do a good job. That's not profound or elevated, but something about just saying that, like broke something loose in my spirit, And it was precisely that moment where something turned and I found myself able to find some words that I might be able to offer um, to that gathering of people that showed up the next day to try to figure out how to say goodbye to Alex. And I'm telling you, like sometimes just simply naming what you want um, opens up a, a powerful chain reaction. And some of us have been wondering why things aren't moving or working, and it might be because you don't even know what you want. And if you don't know what you want, how can things move forward, right? Like a lot of things start to happen when we can simply say what we want. For example, when you get clear on what you want, you might discover that your imagination can help you get there. Like we've all been given this incredible faculty of the mind, which is to be able to create a future, right? We, we have this in, 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 intense sort of capacity within us to, to create futures and to chart paths toward those futures. But a lot of us, the only things that we know that we want are so petty that our brains are bored, And so we know that we want the bigger house or the next step on the ladder. And the brain says, sure, we can imagine our way toward that future. We can direct our energies toward it. But what if you got clear on what what you actually wanted? And then the imagination could give its best energies in service to that dream. Sometimes you get clear on what you want and then things start to happen. Your imagination opens up. Sometimes if you get clear on what you want, people can help. Like, like, I think a lot of us are like, why won't my friends help me? Why won't my church help me? Why won't people come around me and help me get where I'm going? And I've seen it over and over again in my life and other people's lives. The answer is because you don't know what you want, so how can we help you get there? Right? But you get clear on where you want to go. You might discover that there are allies all around you that are ready and willing to jump in with you. But until you know what you want, it's hard for us to get in on the game with you. You get clear on what you want, and things can start to open up sometimes, right? Sometimes getting clear on what you want uh, can feel a little bit like going from lost to found. That was certainly my experience that night um, before Alex's funeral, because I felt as lost as a ball in high weeds, as we say. I felt just completely disoriented. And then simply, simply naming that very, very, very basic thing, I just want to serve these people who are here to grieve Alex, um, felt like going from lost to found which seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus describes in his interaction with the beggar. So watch watch what happens next here. The blind man responds to Jesus and says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. So first of all, let's observe here that the beggar wanted way more than a handout. The beggar was a whole person with a whole story whose heart was craving healing. And Jesus is the one person in the story who has the capacity to see him as a whole person who's asking for healing. So we see that, but then notice what else happens here. Jesus responds, your faith has healed you. you? So this is a story about desire. This is a story about a beggar by the side of the road who hears Jesus walking by, and he cries out with his desire for for Jesus to come along and do something for him. So the, the whole story is about desire. And then Jesus says this is a story about faith. Now I observe that because I think in the year 2019 and the world that we are living in with the questions that we are asking and the data that we are receiving and the sort of swirl of experiences that we are living through, I know a lot of people are having a hard time holding on to something like faith. Some of us feel like we had it and then it fell out of our hands or it slipped through our fingers. Others of us feel like we never had it and we wonder how the guy on our right or the woman on our left seemed to have such a hold of it. Uh, And so you're looking for something like faith and we don't even know where to start anymore. But Jesus takes an encounter which is wrapped around this man's deep desire, and he says this is a story about faith. And I put that out there for you because for some of us, going deeply into our desire might be the starting point of faith. So like like here's an example that I think is relevant whether we're in Southland, Indiana or Belfast, Northern Ireland. Some of us have a desperate desire for things to be right in the world. We are aching for it. We're craving it. In fact, it's so passionately within us that we want a just world. We want a world that's peaceful, a world that's put back together. That desire is so painful inside us that many of us have anesthetized ourselves against it. So we watch a bunch of Netflix and we drink too much and we just kind of go on with our day because to listen to that deep and painful desire, it hurts so much that we're just afraid to listen to it. So we're doing everything we can to shut it up. But it might be that that actually going deeply into that desire for justice, for peace in the world, would would be something like faith, that, that the roots of faith might be located in the same place where that desire lives. And so the fact that we are cutting ourselves off from it because it feels frustrated or uncomfortable means we are also cutting ourselves off from something like faith. And so Jesus seems to be wooing the man toward faith when he's asking questions about his desire. And some of us who have been looking for faith or yearning for faith, might find out that because we've cut ourselves off from the painful yearning things, we're having a hard time finding it. Jesus begins his great sermon in Matthew 5. He says, do you ache for justice? Do you yearn for righteousness? Do you want the world to be put together rightly? He says, actually, I call that a blessed experience. I named that as the starting point of the work that I want to do in your midst. And so maybe naming your desire would be something like a starting point for faith. I think this is why Jesus goes around asking people what they want. Because he knows that our encounter with God and our encounter with our truest, deepest desires ends up looking almost like the same thing. Like they come from the same place, they happen in the same place. And so he keeps asking people, like what do you actually want? Like he's trying to woo it out of them, call it out of them. And I wonder today if God might be wanting to have a serious conversation with you about what you actually want. And maybe bad religion has told you that all of the desires inside there are untrustworthy. I'm here to tell you Jesus disagrees. Um, maybe those desires are so uncomfortable that you just had to shut them up. But I, I wonder if today they need to be cracked back open. And the, it might actually be God who's sort of wooing those things back to the surface and wanting to have a conversation with you about what you want. Um, If I can borrow um, some thinking from our, our Roman brothers and sisters, Pope John Paul said this, speaking to youth a few years ago. He said, it's Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He's waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He's the beauty to which you are so attracted. It's he who provoked you with that thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It's he who urges you to shed the masks of a false life. It's he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices The choices that others try to stifle. It's Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourselves to be ground down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to improving yourselves and society, making the world more human and more fraternal. He says it's Jesus who's roaming the world coaxing your best, deepest, truest desires out of those buried places in your soul and asking them to come to the surface that you might go from lost to found, that you might discover the impossibilities that you've been living with become possible when you start paying attention to that compass inside that's actually telling you where you want to go. And so Jesus asks, what do you want? Now, one other observation um, before we come to the table, uh, which is that in this passage, The beggar isn't the only person who does some wanting. Did you notice that? There's somebody else who does some wanting in this passage. Jesus does some wanting in this passage, doesn't he? He's walking along, his movement has an agenda, and he hears the voice of a beggar, and he stops everything because he wants the beggar brought to the center, right? And one way of narrating the entire story of the scriptures is, Uh, to quote a Jewish scholar, is that it's something like God searching for humanity, God wanting humanity. Like again and again and again in the scriptures, God does some wanting, and what God seems to want is you. That God wants humanity with the affection of a lover that God wants humanity with the fierceness of a mother or a father, that God does some wanting, and the wanting that God does is use. So, of course, God doesn't want to take us away from desire because God has desire, and God's desire moves God toward us, compels God to give God's self for us. The life of God lived in Jesus was all gift, just constantly moving toward those that God wanted, and if we're gonna talk about desire and sacred desire, we also have to talk about the desire of God. And it seems to be that God wants you. So um, in a moment we'll come to the table and I'm gonna ask uh, the band if the guys would come back up and just give us some music. But before we do that, um, if it's okay, I thought I would lead us in just a brief sort of meditation. Uh, it's a prayer of sorts to help you imagine yourself inside this story. And um, if prayer is a word that works for you, that's great. If not, that's okay too. You could just see it as a a reflective moment inside this story to see if it speaks to you. But uh, I'd like to kind of sort of demote my words right now and just sort of create a space uh, in case you would like to listen to what's going on inside yourself. And so if you want to be a part of that, you can just, if you want, like close your eyes. Sometimes it helps me in a a moment of reflection to kind of put my feet flat on the floor to just kind of like open my body up a little bit. I promise this won't get weird. Um, And I I just want to sort of uh, lead you through the movements of this story to see if we can visualize ourselves in this encounter, yeah? Uh, So let me uh, uh, open up with a prayer and then I'll kind of lead us through that. Loving God, we thank you. that the love which holds the universe together moves toward us in desire. And that you have planted in the deepest reaches of our souls sacred yearnings, holy wanting that cries out for lives and communities in a world that is put back together. So pray that as we reflect, you'd help us to bravely go to those places within us where the deepest wanting lives now friends maybe you imagine yourself in this story first perhaps you're part of Team Jesus you're in the entourage you've had some familiarity with him you've had some time with him You're a part of his movement. You're invested in his agenda. And then this distraction comes along, and the beggar cries out. And because you are focused and on task, you turn and you tell him to be quiet, to shut up. And then to your surprise, you find out that you were wrong about Jesus' agenda. But observe with me that Jesus doesn't waste time rebuking those of us who got it wrong. He simply says to the same ones who misunderstood his agenda and told this guy to be quiet, he says to the same ones, now I want you to be the ones who go get him and bring him in. So maybe you feel a fresh beat of joy in your heart that the fact that we've gotten it wrong doesn't mean that we're out of the story but that we get to be the ones to go and bring this beggar to the center. Or maybe you find yourself in the seat of the beggar. I don't know what it is that has made you a beggar. I don't know what wound, what failing, whether it's on your part or somebody else's, has put you in this place, but there you are. for far too long, your vision has been gone. And while many in your shoes would have simply given up on a new future, for some reason, when you hear this crowd walking by and you know that Jesus is in the center of it, for some reason, some kind of hope rises up within you and you cry out. And perhaps you're not even sure what you expected. But after being momentarily rebuked, hands come upon your shoulders, they lift you up and they bring you to the center of the crowd where though you cannot see him, you know that you're standing face to face with Jesus. And though you cannot see him, you sense that he sees you. And the way that you know that he sees you is he doesn't just give you a few dollars or quid and make you walk away. He doesn't lecture you. He simply asks you a question about your desires. He says, what do you want me to do for you? You hear those words, what do you want? For a moment, your brain flitters about from one shallow desire to another and the ego is raging inside. You rifle through a number of things that you could say, but somehow even as your mind is racing, Jesus' question falls upon your soul like an anvil and it cracks it open and you find that you have access to deep places within yourself that you've not seen or heard from in a very long time. And before you can stop yourself, this deep and yearning desire, this aching, wanting thing comes up from within you and it hits your lips. And you speak for Jesus and the crowd to hear this sacred desire you name. For the beggar, this healing that he yearns for his vision that he would see again. And I don't know what it is that taught you to give up on the things that your heart wants most, but surely this beggar had every reason in all of those years to give up on what his heart wanted most. But somehow there was the faintest ember in that dying fire within him that remained alive. And it was given fresh fuel. So he spoke again about what he wanted and Jesus heard him. Somehow you find yourself there and you speak about what you want and he hears you. And then you're surprised to find out that what you thought was a conversation about desire, Jesus heard, as a word of faith. As if to say that deepest yearning within you lives in the very same place where faith dwells. And so having come back to that place, you are in a new place. You are living a life wide open toward the future and Jesus says you are healed. Now I don't know what kind of healing you are yearning for and I don't know how it will come whether it will be in a moment over a lifetime. I don't know if it's healing within the confines of your own life or if it's healing for the world around you, for your family, for your city, for our world. But he makes a promise and he says that by naming this desire, your faith has been awakened and healing will come. And then you, like the beggar, you grab your things. And though your life had been stuck there in that place by the side of the road for all those years, you realize that you're on the move again. You'll be a part of this movement. You'll go to follow him. But you sense that the God who has been wanting you is with you and because of that, you trust that there's a whole new future opening itself up before you. And so you begin to walk. We have not just a a sacred question, but a a sacred meal um, before us today, which seems really fitting. The table is often a place where we know desire in the most basic sense. And the table is a place where we find that Jesus doesn't scorn in those desires, but he fills us with good things. And so um, I'm so happy to say Redeemer shares an open table for anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus. Uh, this is a family that would love to simply welcome anyone who wants to be at the table with Jesus. And so now I think as you'd like, you're welcome. Um, there's table in the back and table in the front. There's gluten-free and there's regular and you can go on your own or you can go with others to break bread together Uh, but now um, as you like it's a, a sacred privilege to welcome one another at the table of jesus